0: So any questions on our reading? I think we're picking up on page two of lesson five, where we had talked about the external works of God external and internal works of the Trinity really and um, and we had had concluded with I think we had finished that discussion on the internal works and the external works. Um the I guess the the summary is that the external works um it is a little bit artificial to you know to divide it into different categories but in the external works of the trinity every person of the godhead is active um but usually one person takes prominence um with the exception being the the you know suffering death and resurrection of Jesus Christ um, only the son of god took on flesh Um, Only the son of God uh, was, you know, walked the earth as a man. Um, Only the son of God suffered and died and was raised from the dead. Um, The father was, was a participant in that it was the father's will that the son would do this. And, um, and the spirit was poured out on him in an extra, extra measure and in a a special way. Um, But only the son of God um, did the actual work of our justification. The internal works, um, that's basically that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, um, and so that is an eternal relationship of Father and Son, and that the Father and the Son together send out the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So that was uh, last time, and probably the time before. Talked about the attributes of God um, on pages 108 to 121 in your in your textbook. Um, we talk about some of the different attributes of God and the fun part on pages 108 and following is that the attributes are, um, are put in bold type, bold face type, so that it kind of jumps out even as you're flipping through those pages. Um, first of all, uh, we, we talk here that nearly every attribute of God has a law side and a gospel side. Um, I think that that can be helpful to think of it that way. Um, or also to, to think of these attributes as this is just who God is. And whether you in, it's true for you, whether you interact with God as an unbeliever or as a believer. Um, If you interact with God as a believer, then the relationship will necessarily be different and that all of God's goodness, it will now act as a a blessing for you um, instead of instead of being a terror to you. And and I think that's that might be a little bit more precise than saying that it has a law side and a gospel side, um, although it might be helpful. Um, So looking at the attributes of God in pages 108 through 121, um, there are like eight or ten of them listed there. Um, First of all, identify two attributes of God that could be both terrifying and comforting, or we could say either terrifying or comforting. What would be one? What was one that jumped out to you? Just. yeah yeah and and all of these things are terrifying um if all we have is the natural knowledge of god um and so yeah as it, the fact that god is just is is terrifying um to me and in my sinful flesh um because i know that i have fallen short of god's law um, at the same time, the fact that, that God is just is extremely comforting because um, you and I have been justified and that his justice has been fully fulfilled in Jesus. And so part of God being just means that if he has accepted the payment of Jesus for sin, which he has, then that means that there is no other payment for sin that is due. And so, um, you know, to think of that, like Romans, I think four twenty-five would be an example, um, where where we talk about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as proof that God has forgiven all sin, that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sin, or for the sake of our sin, and was raised to life for our justification, or for the sake of our justification. Excellent. Uh, the justice of God. What else? There are also a couple of new words that we'll talk about here in this section. Any other attributes that could be either terrifying or comforting? And we're, yeah. The immutable. <laughs> yeah, that God is immutable and wise, and that, uh, that together means that God is omniscient, um, which is terrifying because even though I might be able to hide, uh, hide sin from other people and, uh, might get away with it for a long time. Um, it's also true that I can't hide it from God and I'm not getting away with it at all. (laughs) Um, and that's, and that, I mean, that's, that's true. That's always, that always has been true. And the fact that, you know, God's omniscience, um, is also a comfort, um, especially when we think about, you know, as a Christian, when you think about the weakness of our, of our human bodies and the limits of our knowledge, um, that, that our bodies naturally break down or we develop arthritis or other sicknesses that, that might come as a surprise to us, um, but it's never a surprise to God. Um, and you and I don't know, don't know how many days the Lord has granted for us to live on this earth. But um, but the psalmist says that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. Um, and so that, that's a comfort that we don't have to fret about um about what tomorrow holds. Any others? I think uh, um the pair that that kind of jumped out as as not often showing up in um in a sermon <laughs> you probably should is uh page one sixteen that god is <clears throat> that God is transcendent and that God is imminent uh not imminent meaning like soon and happening happening near in time but imminent with an a uh, which means near in space um and so transcendent God is above all, and you know we have this fantastic James Webb telescope where we can look at at galaxies that we can't even see with the human eye, and they are you know billions of light years away, um, which is a uh, uh, that the universe is incredibly large, and yet God is larger, um, and yet at the same time God isn't just transcendent, but that He is imminent, um, meaning that He is close and nearby. And so like the kind of the memory hook that you might have for that is there's nothing so large that God is larger and there's nothing so, nothing so small that God is smaller or nothing so small that God isn't smaller. Well, you know what I mean? Something like that. <laughs> um, that no matter how big the universe is, God is bigger and above and beyond it. And no matter how small the, uh, the atomic you know, universe is, um, that God is smaller and that God is nearer in, in all of those places. And I guess that, that then goes hand in hand with God being omnipresent, um, that he is present everywhere, which we'll get to in um, the beginning of this, this next section. I think when we talk about God's providence and God's concurrence a little bit. Any other attributes of God that might be a terror or a comfort? Yeah, that God is a is a personal God, um, and this is this is very unique. Um, I can't I don't I can't think of any other religions offhand that have a a personal God who um, desires to be in a you know a relationship with his people. Um, there and, and that when we talk about personal God, sometimes you know the the two ways that we often use that term. Um, personal meaning like you know, friendly or able to be in a relationship with someone, um, you're on personal terms, you know, personal talking terms. Um, the other way that we use it um is that personal as opposed to just some generic force. So if you think of Star Wars, uh, which according to some is one of the greatest movies of all, all time. <laughs> if you ever listen to our podcast on Saturdays, Pastor Zarling is a gigantic Star Wars nerd. Uh, I don't use that term lightly. Uh, um, but in Star Wars, in the Star Wars universe, there is there isn't a personal God. There's a generic force. You kind of like that. And um, and that, that's kind of the same idea that you would encounter in a lot of the East religions, um, like Hinduism or Buddhism, um, maybe Taoism as well. I have to think about that 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 god is not personal in any way that that when you when you eventually reach nirvana then your soul merges with this this gigantic lake of souls and then it's just who knows what your afterlife actually entails <laughs> um, and at the, so that so in comparison to that you know god is personal he's not just a, a nameless faceless force Um, and on the other side that God is personal in that he also desires a relationship with us. Um, and, you know, by contrast, you might think of Allah as, as portrayed by the Islamic faith, um, that Allah is a judge who is, who is, he's a capricious judge, which means that he, he doesn't have a, an ongoing same standard. He can say, this is the standard, but I might change it at the last, at the last minute. Um, and so when, when somebody dies in the Muslim faith, they believe that you have to go through uh, three separate tests before you finally fa- stand in judgment before Allah. And the only one that comes to mind off off hand is um, like the second test. I think it is, is you have to walk on a bridge that is as wide and as strong as a human hair. And this bridge is suspended over a Canyon of fire and your evil deeds are heavy like lead so that if you're walking across this bridge and you have, not, um, you have not done something to atone for your evil deeds, then they will drag you down into the burning fire. So that's like test number two. Um, there's like test number one and three. And then if you pass all three tests, then you get the, the opportunity, <laughs> the chance to stand before Allah, and then he will judge you. Um, and he might, he might even say, well, you did, you did a good enough job, but I'm just not feeling it today. So goodbye, um, that he doesn't hold himself to a, a standard that even though he is a personal God, um, he doesn't, he doesn't desire, he has no, he has no sense of grace. He has no sense of love that desires to, um, bring people into a relationship with him or to atone for their sin um that he is in a sense a person um that he is a being in and of himself um, according to their according to their teaching but there is no sense of personal warmth in that in that god at all so i guess that that touches on both the the two aspects of personal Um, the main one that we're talking about here in the attributes of god is that he is a a person Um, as opposed to just this generic force, yeah is, he is Allah omnipresent? I don't know it's been a while since i've since i've uh since I've looked at Islam, although we could i do have a Bible class on it, yeah mhm-. Yeah, um, it, it, is, it is true that all gods except the true God are created by man. Um, and I would put an asterisk by, by the God and the religion of Islam and the religion of Mormonism. Um, because in both of those, there, there seems to be more than just the human conscience at work, which is what you see in like Buddhism or Hinduism. Um, but in both of those, the, the founder of the religion said that he had spoken with an angel who gave him a special revelation. Um, and so I would, I would not doubt in the least if, um, if, they had, so if they saw what they thought was an angel. Um, just that we know Satan himself likes to masquerade as an angel of light <laughs> and, and looking at, looking at both of them, uh, both the account of, of where they say that their religion came from, as well as kind of how it has played out and the influence that it has had on the world. Um, I would not doubt, um, a purely demonic origin for, for both Mormonism and, and Islam. Um, but then it doesn't take much beyond that to, <laughs> to, to lose any sense of order that was originally there. And then it just kind of splinters and, you know, you got the kernel that you got from the demon and then it just splinters into all, all all sorts of factions as divided by sinful flesh and human conscience. (laughs) Yeah. Good question. Um, So attributes of God, let's see the, the other ones um, that were discussed here. What's that? Yeah, that God is wise. Yeah, and that He knows what's best, um, and that when we talk about God's God's wisdom and God's omniscience, um, that they kind of go, that they go hand in hand. That omniscience is knowing everything, and and wisdom is applying that knowledge um, for for the best outcome. And as He has set, told to us in Scripture, the best outcome for His people. Um, and part of that omniscience means that God knows what you what had been. What is and what will be, as well as what could have been, what and what could, would have been, and what could be. So it's all the all the all the past events, present events, and current, future events, as well as all the potential past events, potential current events, and potential future events. Um, that if you if you said you know your plan right now is you're driving out of the driveway tonight and you're going to turn left. And then at the last moment, when you're actually driving, you're saying, oh, I'm going to turn right. Well, God knew that you could, you know, pin, piddly little example. God knew that you could have chosen either direction. God knew what you would choose. And God knew the ramifications of going either left or right, that maybe you got stopped at the stoplight as a as a fire truck came screaming through, <laughs> which if you ever drive over here, especially for all the newcomers, it's at least once a week that I see a car come screaming through on a red. So make sure you just wait a little bit longer, especially at this intersection. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, that, that wisdom of God is um, is that knowledge that is applied for for the good of his people, the good of his church. <clears throat> and then finally, the will of God. And and that will, um, I think the main thing that we, we see here, we talk about, we talk about the, the natural knowledge of God and the revealed knowledge of God, um, where the natural knowledge of God is what every person knows about God by nature, from nature and from conscience. The revealed knowledge of God is what every person knows about God from scripture. When we also talk about the will of God, we have uh, the revealed will of God, which He has told us in Scripture, as well as the hidden will of God, um, which is just things that He has not told us. And um, and from what we see in Scripture, there you know there's no contradiction in God. That that it's not like God says one thing, but then secretly He He believes and wants another thing. Um, there's no contradictions. Just that there are some things that are hidden from us. Um and so what would be some of those examples of things that God has kept hidden from us? Yeah. Mhm. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, and and that would be a good example that um, from before the creation of the world, that God had in mind exactly his plan of salvation to to send his son for the redemption of humanity. Um, And yet he revealed that uh, piece by piece um, over time, and he progressively narrowed it down from our perspective, even though his plan of salvation had been perfectly set um, with all the contingencies in place. Um, you might also think, you know, aspects of the hidden will of God, um, that God God alone knows who is a believer, God alone knows who is um, who is one of his elect and who will be in heaven, um, that God alone knows the day and time of, of judgment day, um, and, and God knows the date and time of um, when any of us will stand before him before judgment day, <laughs> Yeah. And that, and, and I guess that that's a good point that that time itself is a creation from God, um, that God isn't bound by time, but that rather God is the Lord of time and stands above and outside of time. Um, kind of the, the, <laughs> if, you ever, if you if you're, if you ever watched the movie Pocahontas, um, where Pocahontas sings this song and says, you never step in the same river twice. <laughs> she, she was a good philosopher, I guess. Um, it, it's kind of a helpful analogy. If you think of time as a river, and uh, even, even one of our hymns talks that way, time like an ever rolling stream soon bears a all the way. Um, and that God is standing outside of that next to the river. And he, you know, he is forward and backwards. He's everywhere along the riverbank. And yet he can stand into that. step into that river, uh, which he did, um, both with, you know, sending his, his prophets and speaking to his people. And then eventually with the sending of his son, um, that he stepped and acted in time, uh, where Jesus carried out his ministry. All right. Uh, the other thing I'm talking about the will of God, um, where we talk about, and this will come up again in the next chapter when we talk about providence and concurrence, um, but that we should talk about here is determinism, um, and this is this is an easy one to to lapse into. That there's kind of a, a middle road with uh, you know, like with most things, kind of a ditch on both sides. Um, determinism is the idea that God has has chosen every detail of your life and, um, and has chosen it ahead of time. And it's just going to happen the way it's going to happen, um, regardless of what we do. And, and that's not true entirely, um, because God has given us a, a, some semblance of personal freedom and some ability to, you know, make choices within that, that element of personal freedom. Um, in you know, freedom and external matters, we're not talking about um, talking about spiritual freedom here. And but when we talk about determinism, most of that, most of that discussion is, is set aside when we understand um, the, the next chapter, and we talk about God's providence, that from when we talk about from two perspectives that from God's perspective, things must be as they are and things never change and things always have been going to be the way that they would be. From our perspective, things do change and will change and the choices that we make have an influence on that. Um, exactly for the reason Ron had said, because we live in time and God does not. Um, and it's, But it's also this matter of perspective where we see things like going forward through time, you know, like left to right, and God takes that and he turns it on its end. And so God sees all of it, um, all of it at once. Um, but, it, but it's more than that. It's not just that God knows what will happen and what could have happened and what could not have happened, but that God also chose for you exactly what for you was a free choice, Um, so in your lifetime, you think to yourself, you know, I, you had the, you had the choice to choose this career or work option, um, or to, to choose that spouse and get married to that person. Um, and those were all free choices and they are, they are absolutely, um, you know, from our limited human perspective, they are totally free. From God's perspective, um, from the viewpoint of eternity, that God had chosen those things for you, and that God had chosen those people for you, Um, but then, you know, it's difficult for our human minds to try to reconcile those two as, as equally true. Um, and i think you know the analogy of um time is like time is like a stream or that god sees time on on an end when we see it as a as a left to right timeline um, that might be helpful but it sometimes it just takes while to say okay <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, and and that you know Calvin. Um, when we get to Calvin, we, we talk about uh, double predestination, which is a logical human conclusion, that is f- a flawed human conclusion. And so the way the way the Bible teaches is predestination or election, that God chose, that God both knew ahead of time. And, um, rather I'll I'll change that order that God chose those who would believe in him and God knew when he would bring them to faith. And then he, even before he created the world and that during their lifetime, he brought them to faith and kept them in that faith. When we get to election, that's one of the uh, most beautiful parts of this entire book where, um, professor Deutschlander breaks it out and says that this is a gospel promise only for believers. Um, the Calvinist idea was that the a logical, flawed human conclusion that says if God chose some to be saved, then God must have also chosen some to be condemned. And then he tucks that away in what he calls the hidden will of God. And he, what he does is he sets up this contradiction within God, or this contradiction between God and scripture, which is not scriptural, nor is it godly, um, where he says God says in the Bible that he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's his revealed will. But he says God isn't actually serious about that. That in his hidden will, God does not want all people to be saved. Because in his hidden will, that God has also chosen some to be condemned. Um, And so what he does is he sets up this, this logical human answer for why are some saved and not others. When biblically, they are two separate questions. But where that comes into play is, um, it, I think it's 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 still very popular. Um, maybe more so among evangelicals, and but maybe not. I mean, um, even my the Lutheran high school that I attended, or you know, a lot of Lutheran high schools, um, will will have a graduation verse from Jeremiah twenty nine. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, which is a very difficult. I mean, it's a true statement, but it's a very difficult passage to preach about and to talk about scripturally, um, because it's easy to lapse into just this, God has a plan for my life, and if my life doesn't turn out the way that I want, then then either, oh, well, I don't have to do any work, <laughs> because God still has a plan for my life, or, um, or trying you know, just set up for confusion, you know, trying to f- spend all your time figuring out what God's plan is for your life, rather than looking at your vocation and saying, this is what I should be doing with my life. Um, and, and it's a very popular concept because it, it gets people's attention away from the word of God and away from the, their responsibilities of vocation and the third use of the law. Meaning um, instead of, you know, looking at my job and saying, or my, my family or household or whatever the case may be and saying, how can I serve them in love according to God's law? Um, the question becomes uh, looking at my life and saying, how can I figure out what God is trying to do in my life? And the only way to, and that, that quickly moves somebody's attention away from the word of God um, and, and onto the details of their life or onto what their heart says or, um, applying scripture in an unscriptural way. Um, because, you know, even, even that, that idea of determinism, while, while it is true in, in the very wide sense, it is true that God has determined every, every step and every footstep and every heartbeat and every choice of your life. Um, that, that is only helpful and encouraging for the Christian who also knows their responsibility and the freedom that they have each day as they live through their life. And so the truth of, of God um, providing for and, and knowing and choosing um, all that you have in life is that blessing is only realized as we look at our responsibility in God's law, and we use that blessing as encouragement to live out a faithful Christian life. And so, you know, I guess to to draw that one full circle, um, what we see in a lot of modern evangelicalism is the end result of John Calvin's double predestination, where... Because the other issue is that the, the main problem in evangelicalism isn't my sin. The main problem is that my fear is holding me back from my potential. <laughs> and so if, um, if my sin is the problem, then predestination, double predestination is the answer. If my fear holds me back from my potential, then discovering God's plan for my life is the answer. And I think that's that's kind of the linker, the connection between double predestination and determinism as we see it um, applied unscripturally in um, modern Christianity. That was a lot of talking. I don't know if that was helpful. We'll start with Crystal. Yeah. <laughs> that's one of the, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Definitely. And I and I think that that is a that is a very good way of thinking of it where when we talk about, um, when we talk about determinism, um, or, or at least God's providence in our lives, that it's, it's a lot, it's helpful to see in hindsight, like when you look back over your life and you're like, how did I get to this place where I am today? And you see, you know, what at one time was, you know, the most, you know, a job loss that moved you across the country. Um, that was a, an older couple back in Ottawa. Um, and they they would talk about that even you know sixty years after it had happened, it was devastating to them. And they were like, "But it's the best thing that ever happened to us." And and sometimes it's you see that in hindsight how how God had turned those things into a blessing. Um, the more challenging one is is when somebody is a little bit younger, and um, <clears throat> and every voice says, you know, look within your heart, follow follow your feelings, follow your heart, um, or places all this all this stress upon a person to decide their path for their life. And, and there the reassurance is that as a Christian, you know, every, every choice is open to you. As long as it's um as long as it's not an ungodly vocation, like don't sign up to be a mafia hitman, Um, But other than that, you know, the choices are wide open and you can choose that. If that's what you want to do, then choose it with the absolute confidence that God will bless it and use it to be a blessing for you. And if, um, and if you come to realize that maybe it's not a good fit for, for your, you or for your life then that will also become abundantly clear and i think you know the way you described it is um, is also one of the one of the reasons why you know a a generational congregation is so beneficial like to have somebody like like to have somebody say what you said to somebody who's like 12 13 14 or 18 19 20 um that that would be that's fantastic. Other questions. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. the Yeah. Yeah. And and so Calvinism, um, they they are perfectly fine with a contradiction between what God says in His revealed will and and the revealed knowledge of God, and what God has decided in His hidden will, because the they would say that the greatest glory of God isn't in His mercy or grace or in sending His Son for your justification. They would say that the greatest glory of God is seen in his sovereignty and his power. And so the fact that um, that God has chosen, has chosen, you know, he has given this general statement um, that God wants all people to be saved, and yet in his hidden will, God doesn't want all people to be saved. That glorifies God because then it, it amplifies or demonstrates God. Sovereignty and his power. That yeah, it's it's a little backwards because then where you end up is um, instead of Christians being directed back to the Word of God, Christians are directed instead to demonstrate that they are some part of the elect. Um, It's it's this idea that the way you think you came to faith is the way that you think you stay in the faith. So if I as a Lutheran think I came to faith when I was baptized. Um, and that, you know, through the means of grace, <laughs> which was our catechism lesson tonight, um, then I as a Lutheran believe that I remain in faith by being connected to that means of grace, um, the gospel and word and sacrament. If I, as a, as a Calvinist, think that um, the way I came to faith was, well, it's a little bit easier with the Arminians or the, the Baptists, that if I came to faith by my decision for Christ, then the way that I remain in the faith is I keep on deciding, or I reinforce this decision, or I elevate the uh, the emotional impact of this decision on my life. The Calvinist one is a little bit more difficult. I I'll have to go back and double check on how I wrote that one. Yeah, looks like you have a question. Yeah. Yeah. That's exact that's exactly correct. Um where it turns yeah mm-hmm. Yeah. Look at the Yeah. benefits yeah i think i think that's a that's a good image um anything else um talked about the will of god talked about um and, and so i guess number two on on your worksheet when we talk about the will of god if it is true i mean it is it is helpful to to set your heart at ease and say that, yes, God has a plan for your life. Um, But, but also at the same time, you have to hold on to that God has from that. We don't live in God's perspective. We live in our human perspective and that God has given us the freedom of choice in particular matters. And, um, and he's given us guidance in his word. And so that, that promise of, of God, overseeing and guiding our decisions and bringing them to a, a worthwhile conclusion, um, is fulfilled as he guides us through his, his word to make decisions in this life. And it's, and it's usually only with the perspective of, um, of a few extra years that we, that we can look back and say, wow, I, I do see how that worked out. And, um, and how we ended up where we are today. You know, even, even for me, um, where I, I vickered in Canada, at, in in Mississauga, and that's where I met Desiree. And then, thanks to the quirks of U.S. immigration, um, I wasn't eligible to be, you know, to be called. And you know, I, w- I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in Toledo today, I don't think, if um, if I hadn't met Desiree and been, you know, relegated to serving in Canada for two years. And um, you know, just kind of the details, and I'm sure you could think of a dozen details like that from your own life. All right, that gets us into lesson six and God's creating activity, and um. This part in particular was looking at at the creation in Genesis one. Um, Genesis one through twenty five is um, through most of day six. I don't think it includes the blessing at the end of day six, which was I think in verse twenty six. All right. So, and looking at um, looking at God's creating activity in the light of you know the attributes of God is uh, is the particular use here. Uh, so, for the first one, page 125, the, uh, the opening quotation that we've got, that regarding God's creating the universe, proofs and arguments from geology and archaeology may all be very interesting and sometimes worthwhile, but our faith does not rest on anything other than the clear word of God. I thought, I thought that was kind of, kind of helpful um toward the bottom of page 125 in that last full paragraph um that the creation was a creation out of nothing ex nihilo is the uh a creatio ex nihilo is the uh the latin term for it that there was nothing and then and then god until god made it um and so even even you know, the, the scientists of today would say, well, there was nothing, and then, and then there was some dust, and then there was more dust, and then it all started moving around until it exploded, or something like that. Um, and I'm sure they, they use all sorts of physics to describe it. Um, but it's so much simpler to just look at the Word of God and say, well, you know, God said, and it happened. Uh, from Genesis 1 and 2. A few, a few of the attributes of God that we see highlighted here. Um, there's a just a beautiful selection of um, comments on on the creation. Um, evident that that God is that God is powerful, and that He is wise, that He is orderly, loving, and a God who speaks. And the the many of these can be seen um, can be seen also reflected in nature, and that's where the revealed knowledge of God in Scripture can open our eyes a little little bit to um, the natural knowledge of God in nature. Not that you know, in, in you know, kind of in reflection, I guess. Not that um, not that it provides extra material necessarily for evangelism but it uh it definitely opens our eyes to the fact that that god is you know powerful and wise and orderly orderly you know you think of like the dna um or the order of creation um i actually had my my high school um chemistry professor chemistry teacher um He had us watch a Bob Ross video, (laughs) and I didn't know that even by that time, Bob Ross had been, had passed away like eight years previously or seven years previously. Um, And, and just, he used that as an image for how, for how God created the world that the first thing Bob Ross did was, was cover his entire canvas with this magic white or whatever it was. And then he started making the happy little landscape. And then after, and then he added the happy little trees and, and, um, and, you know, God didn't make any accidents, but it was at least a neat analogy. Like if you ever bored and tune into PBS and they've got Bob Ross reruns on um, it, it at least communicated that, you know, that's kind of what God does. Um, where he, he covers the entire world, he creates this, this ball of mud, and then he covers it in light. Um, and, and then he speaks and then he, he interacts with this world through speaking. Um, and I think that that's kind of that last part or the second to last one that God is loving, um, and this is this is probably the biggest point of contrast between every form of evolution and every form, you know, creation as the Bible describes it, that there's that there's no unselfish reason for love in an evolutionary mindset, um, aside from you know the propagation of, of your own genetics, I guess, um, but even then it it is a selfish reason, and there is no explanation for death in an evolutionary mindset, because in evolution, death serves to advance the species. Um, and in creation, um, death is the, the just payment for sin. Uh, finally, this last one, a God who speaks. Um, this is the, for sure, the only one that you cannot, that you cannot see from looking at nature. And that if you look at nature as a Christian, that you can see all the others um, reflected in nature even as it labors under sin. Um, That doesn't mean nature is a replacement for scripture, but you definitely see scripture reflected in in nature. But the fact that God is a God who speaks um, gets back to the fact that God is a personal God and that God has, has chosen to interact with his creation in a particular way. Um, And that in Genesis one, we already have, um, have a truth that we will see in greater detail later on. That God is a means of grace, God, and has chosen to only interact with His creation through a particular means, um, through a particular tool. So God could have simply thought it, um, or He could have simply, you know, snapped His fingers, or you know, not done anything at all and had an entire world show up. But the way in which He creates is is also also holds some meaning for us in how God has chosen to interact with his creation. Uh, anything on, on that? How about that next one? What's the difference between raw evolutionary theory and a theistic evolutionary theory? And this will probably wrap us up for today. Yeah, Joe. Oh, just yeah. Yeah. And and in varying degrees of God's involvement, um, so raw is pretty much every whatever every science textbook or popular science commentator will subscribe to a raw evolutionary theory because they would say that's the only strictly scientific way of looking at it, that science um, does not account for, or cannot account for um, for a God who is, doesn't operate according to the laws of physics. Um, a theistic evolutionary theory is that God either, maybe God started it, and he, maybe he seeded the seeded this ball of mud with life, and then he just let it go its course, um, or that God had participated in, in the very initial stages, um, you know, to a somewhat greater degree, but then He just let things go its own way. Um, and I think that that theistic evolutionary theory, um, a lot of it came from the uh, the seminary, the Lutheran seminary, which isn't one of ours, never was, um, but the Lutheran seminary in Gettysburg. And then in the 20th century, the Lutheran Seminary down in Columbus, uh, with the the American Lutheran Church, um, which is you know kind of the the place where a lot of the 20th century um, difficulties with the Bible or 20th century heresies about the Bible really came um, out of Columbus as one of the major areas. So raw evolutionary theory and theistic evolutionary theory anything else on that then that will wrap us up for tonight already so we will um we'll close with prayer dear lord um we thank you for revealing to us revealing yourself to us Um, As a God who is everywhere and above everything, and yet who has chosen to um, be with us, to know all things, and to reveal yourself to us in a very personal um, and personal way in which you conceal your glory. Uh, We thank you for coming to us as the baby Jesus and for taking our place under your justice. Um, and for guaranteeing to us through your word and your sacrament that our sin has been forgiven and that we have life with you today and always. Uh, Give us confidence with this truth to live our life under your gracious, loving care today and always to the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much.